Hello and welcome to Core Values, the Religion and Humanities podcast, produced by the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities at California State University, Chico. I'm your host and chair of the department, Daniel Weidlinger. This season, we're going to be catching up with some recent graduates and finding out what they've been doing. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Spencer McNairn. He's a recent graduate from our program in religious studies. He graduated from California State University, Chico, in the spring of 2021, and he's now a master's student at Syracuse University studying international relations. Hi, Spencer. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. What a pleasure. It's so great to reconnect. Yeah, it's great to see you. Great to hear that you're doing well. And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about your new program and how studying religion helped to prepare you for it. And we're really proud of our students who've gone on to all sorts of amazing things, both in the work world and more education. And you are one of the students that we're very proud of. Why don't you start by telling a little bit about how you got interested in religious studies? Why did you choose that major when you were at Chico, of all things? Certainly. Um, well, most simply, it was, in my opinion, the, the perfect nexus to explore a lot of my different interests, including human behavior, psychology, history, anthropology, philosophy, governance, and environmentalism, even. Um, religious studies is this intersectional program among these social sciences and humanities that explores the human experience in a truly humanistic way. That was one of the biggest uh, motivators uh, for me coming into this program. Um, whether it's obviously manifest today or not, religion is still one of the, the strongest motivators um, among our lives, if someone is even you know, spiritual or non-religious at all. Um, regardless, this human experience seems to be coupled with these terrifying moments of when we realize, oh shoot, I'm alive, what now? <laughs> and this program helps to offer some solace or or at least an outlet to explore you know, these considerations further. Um, similarly, religion is seeing this global positive trend, um, and studying it, uh, I thought, was really a key in becoming a, a global citizen in our ever-connected world. Thank you. That's really one of the best definitions that I've heard. Let's back up a second and focus on this point that you brought up when you first started speaking, the interdisciplinary uh, nature of religious studies. Because a lot of students don't really know what they want to study. I mean, when you think about it, you come into a university having, you know, paid a little bit of attention during high school to things, but you don't know what anthropology even is, really, when you come into a university. You don't know what sociology is. You don't know what philosophy is. You might have read a couple books that are so-called philosophical. But all of these things, to ask a student at, let's say if you're a first-time student, so you come in at 18 or 19, and they say, well, do you want to do philology or do you want to do cultural anthropology? They don't even know what those are. So how can they choose amongst those majors? 
And one of the great things about religious studies is that it incorporates a lot of different approaches into the study. So in our program, we do sociology, anthropology, philosophy, history, art, and these kinds of things. So I like that you appreciated that element because I know that you're a very your interests are very broad. You have a, all sorts of you've you've traveled a lot, and you like learning languages. You like learning about ideas, philosophy, culture. You also are deeply into music. I think you play guitar as well, right? That's right. So yeah. you know you're somebody who doesn't want to be pigeonholed into any one particular box. And I think religious studies. I hope religious studies was a really good outlet for all of those interests to come together. Yes. Yeah. That's certainly true. And really was one of um, you know the the greatest aspects that I've enjoyed about this program. And um, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, it was it, it certainly helped to benefit me in now coming into a new interdisciplinary approach to international relations. Yes, that's that's fantastic. And I know that, well, when you came into the program, did you think that you had to be religious to have an interest in religious studies, or did you understand that you don't? Um, I, I suppose I had, uh, you know, this general idea that it, it was not teaching how to be religious, but um, you know, the academic study of religion. What is it? How, how do people who are religious behave in a social environment? And how does religion motivate others? Um, so I suppose that's kind of broadly what I was interested in, again, is exploring these different ways, uh, as I mentioned earlier, of how you know, different people in different geographical and, uh, and cultural contexts have grappled with these uh, you know, these moments of what next, you know, uh, have our hands over our face and thinking, oh, my goodness, what is happening? <laughs> uh, yeah, life hits us with a lot of strange things. I mean, we had the pandemic the last two years. We've got global insecurity, food insecurity, climate change. All of these things assail us in our daily lives. And, you know, we're born, as I said in the very first podcast that I ever made for this program, that we're born without an instruction book of how to live life. So in different cultures, different times, people come to all sorts of conclusions about how to do it. And relig the religions of the world are basically storehouses of much of that knowledge that is built up over the years on how do we negotiate our way in the world. And as I often tell students, whether God exists or not is one small part of that, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. People always ask me, well, how can it be that people act religious but don't really believe in God that much? And, you know, this is a, uh, this is a, a quandary that people that haven't really explored all that religion has to offer, people get a little confused about. But, as you know, there's a lot of rich features to religion that don't necessarily stand or fall on whether God exists or not. It's something that we can't really know for sure one way or the other. And many people just kind of bracket it and put it aside and say, well, who knows? But nevertheless, my people have been doing this for 2,000, 3,000 years. And in order to gain a sense of connection to my culture, my background, my history, I do those things yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> we do lots of things that we don't believe in, right? I mean, like, I always say when people say that, I say, well, do you read Harry Potter? And they say, oh, yes. And I say, do you get a lot out of it, like about the meaning of friendship and the meaning of loyalty and the meaning of, uh, you know, sticking, staying true to your beliefs? Yes. But do you think that Harry Potter is real? Does, 
Well, no. Okay, but you still go to the conventions, you still dress like that, you still get a lot out of it, even though in the back of your mind you kind of know it didn't really happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah But absolutely. you bracket that out, um, right? It's the same. You're totally right. Ways, I remember, kind I, of I think in the, one of the first lectures I had in the entire religious studies program in Religion 200, uh, Religions of South Asia, with the very own Daniel Beidlinger, uh, we were discussing the foundations of what is religion? How do we know when and where to recognize it. And similarly, you brought up an example of the Grateful Dead. Um, these people, yeah, where these, um, they have their own mm -hmm. culture amongst them. I mean, they have the ritual of going to the shows or they have the kind of the experiential dimension of listening to the music and whatever else comes with that to, you know, enjoy the music with their whole body. And um, yeah, it's amazing. I know one aspect within religion that you're particularly interested in is sustainability and climate change and how the different religions of the world shape our approach to the environment. So before we get into the international relations stuff that you're now doing, just tell me a little bit about how the study of religion helped to inform your understanding of sustainability and environmental problems that the world is facing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a great question. So I, I come from a very scientific family from... Uh, these natural sciences. My grandfather was actually a professor at Chico State in botany and plant physiology. And similarly, my... Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was back nice. in the 90s, okay. I believe. Um, okay. Similarly, my father has uh, his undergrad in biology. My older brother has his undergrad degree in biology. Um, so that, that goes without saying that um, the natural sciences are discussion and, and how we can interact with the world. Um, so I suppose my approach in understanding and, and merging these two fields of religious studies and sustainability um, kind of go hand in hand in that um, if we were to, for example, let's think of biodiversity kind of at its core. Um, imagine the Galapagos Islands or a Peruvian rainforest, or even Upper Park in Chico, uh, maintaining a variety of life in an ecosystem is necessary to its proper function of the greater environment. If there are too many squirrels, it puts a strain on the natural activities of the other organisms, like the, the woodpeckers are going to have as many acorns to eat. Uh, the, I suppose the beautiful thing is, is that nature will always find its way to balance itself out. Uh, on this kind of larger equilibrium of uh, interspecies medium of um, the overpopulation of squirrels might influence more hawks or more coyotes to, um, you know, balance it out in that way. And um, once the coyotes and the um, the hawks meet their demise, it again supports the turkey vultures and um, the bugs on the ground, and thus repeats the process. Um, so that was kind of the the foundation I had growing up. Um, so similarly, if we were to apply that similar idea of biodiversity and apply it amongst ourselves in a social environment, um, looking at religious diversity and maintaining international religious freedom is just as necessary in maintaining a functional and healthy social environment to challenge ideas and develop empathy uh, and participate in the same diverse experience as our other cousins throughout the, the food web. Um, from here, I suppose the danger is that 
um, we've begun to capitalize on these social behaviors uh, that create this imbalance in these social dynamics that exist among us humans. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so in understanding that too much of one thing doesn't support the healthy balance um, that mirrors nature's way. So, in understanding sustainability and its connection with religious studies, it's it is maintaining that balance. It is uh, understanding and recognizing that um, diversity is is beneficial in you know the natural process and in the social process. I did not think you were going to go there with that answer. I was expecting you to say talk more about the different religious approaches to humanity's relationship with nature. Right, the idea that some religions talk about humans as being the caretakers of nature, others as being the masters of nature, and yet others as just being one part of nature and nothing particularly ontologically special, and that those different religious approaches might flavor the way the people of that religion approach nature. But you went in a totally different direction that I haven't really thought about before. I really, really like that, that it's the diversity of nature and recognizing how systems, complicated systems such as nature, are delicate but have their own balance that they want to constantly, like an equi a state of equilibrium, that they will naturally bend towards if it gets upset. And that if you look at the diversity of religions and ideas, there's also a natural balance of those. And that if you try to force one over the other, it might temporarily right, be uh, larger, but then it'll slowly kind of move back towards an equilibrium. Certainly. And I think it's easy uh, to, to forget that we as a interconnected human species are social creatures. We are animals, really. Uh, and recognizing that nature within us is important to recognize the nature that surrounds us. I think one of the most influential religious scholars, beyond yourself, of course, is <laughs> is Emil Durkheim, uh, who, in a nutshell, believed that religion inspires group allegiance through shared symbols or morals. Again, it, it's investing uh, that thought in the group uh, community and 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 recognizing the again the nature that. Uh, that fulfills us and and recognizes our, um, I guess, the cooperation that is necessary for us to function and survive as human beings. Um, similarly, I wrote quite a few papers in my undergraduate degree on the neuroscience of religion, just as kind of a general passion and a, and a general interest. Um, and yeah, understanding that natural stimuli, uh, this is speaking towards, uh, to put in context, if we were to look at, um, again, Ninny and Smart as our framework, if we were to look at the social and experiential dimensions of religion, um, asking questions like how do outside stimuli from nature motivate and inspire feelings of awe or greatness or holiness? So again, recognizing that we are a part of nature is, I think, important in recognizing the importance of sustaining and maintaining nature because hearing the birds chirping in the morning or watching the sun come up from behind a mountain or sitting quietly on a beach and hearing the waves that's it's a part of us it's a part of our body it's kind of where we came from so recognizing the importance of sustainability 
is really connecting all that we know in the natural environment. One of the things that I've often been concerned with is that it seems sometimes like a lot of Western organizations have a mold or a model of how a society should develop based on the Western history of development and then try to impose that onto all the various different cultures in developing countries around the world. And I know you've thought about this issue as well. So what is your standpoint on that problem of, you know, trying to impose a Western idea of human rights, let's say, or of uh, economic organization on some culture that, as you say, might be in a completely different environment with a completely different history and a completely different background? It really comes down to understanding the commonalities and the shared experiences um, and studying each other and the great thinkers of our time has really allowed um, this opportunity to sympathize and, and slowly accept that cooperation is that key among our kind. Naturally, conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen regardless um, because of these ideological differences, but maintaining that recognition that we do have different experiences, I think is key in understanding and having an open mind to an opportunity when conflicts do arise that it's important to uh, adapt and and move beyond <laughs> these rifts between our differences of opinions. Yeah, no, that's that's a beautifully put. You're absolutely right. That the best way to think about it is that there are differences, but there are also commonalities. The whole trick for a successful campaign is to build on the commonalities and appreciate the differences. So I don't think it's one or the other, right? It's not like you've got a cookie-cutter Western idea of what a society should look like, and you try to just force it onto all the cultures around the world. But on the other hand, there are certain aspects of human life that are common to everybody. I mean, nobody likes to get physically hurt, for example. I don't care what culture it is. Nobody likes being injured. Nobody likes being hungry. So in as much as we can give people the right, you know, to uh, the right to physical safety, that is good, and the right to have food or the ability to grow it, those things are good. But on the other hand, you don't want to force cultures that to change in ways that don't really mesh with the way they've been doing things all along. So you've got to find that common point. I mean, if we look at Afghanistan, there's certainly interesting lessons there. And when people say, well, what use is religion today? You know, how, how is this going to make money? Of course, in today's modern return on investment-based society, people like to know, well, if I'm studying something, how is it going to help save money? Well, we spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan. And I submit that if we had a more sensitive understanding of the local culture, we might have done a little bit better in trying to... Um, in trying to model the new Afghanistan after Western ideas. Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, religion, as we've discussed, is a major motivator in an individual's behavior. Um, but similarly, it is on a, on a larger scale. Uh, these worsening humanitarian crises that we are seeing in Afghanistan um, caused by these acute food shortages or political instability um, 
is really all coming down to a lack of representation and a lack of, I suppose, um, human um, recognition, this might be the right word, um, of the Taliban government in saying we have this idea of how things should um, should be run. And I suppose that's where the conflict comes in is, you know, the recognition that someone is going to behave and, and um, you know, move towards how they feel things should be um, should be run. And of course, others are going to take it in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, re it's a really complicated question because, yes, as you say, a lot of the uh, sanctions that are on Afghanistan now because the Taliban is not following the kind of pathway that we would want a government to follow are hurting the common people of Afghanistan for sure. So how far should we push it in forcing our ways onto them? That's a very deep and difficult question. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your own field of studies because I'm curious as to what you're studying in the program now. So you're doing an international relations program what sort of courses have you taken so far? Uh, yes, so within this international relations program, I'm also simultaneously pursuing a, an emphasis in governance, diplomacy, and international organizations. Similarly, I'm also enrolled in a certificate program in conflict and collaboration. So that's inspired you know, a, a plethora of interesting oh, fantastic. courses that, yeah. that all uh, relate just to these uh, very discussions we're having right now. Um, last semester, actually, I was, um, for example, I was in a class with the former Deputy Secretary of State, James Steinberg. Um, this class, we would observe each week, we would observe a different international issue um, from, you know, geopolitical tensions in the South China Sea or climate change or international approaches to mitigating COVID-19 and other global health pandemics. From there, after recognizing this issue, we would um, kind of create a list and, and understand all of the actors involved, not just the uh, primary governments involved, but the local actors, the civil society organizations, the non-governmental organizations, the regional associations and organizations, and um, from there, once everyone kind of has their, their place met, then we would understand uh, the issues in a more complex dynamic. Who wants what? Who is taking a position on one issue and who is taking a position on another issue or the same issue and how is it different? Um, so really the key was understanding each of these uh, different issues as conflict or collaboration. And then we would apply um we we would apply um some methods or um some different strategies to kind of move beyond and, and mitigate and maneuver through these issues i see okay and i'm curious does religion ever come up in the classes well <laughs> yeah well that that's the thing um religion unfortunately it usually takes its place through issues of security or violent social dynamics instead of exploring um, the different solutions to live cooperatively, which I think religion certainly has the uh, the opportunity to do uh, in a pluralistic society. Uh, and understanding religion as an academic field, as we do in the, the, the 
department here, <laughs> um, it it certainly doesn't get um, it doesn't get the recognition that I think it deserves. Um, that goes without saying. There are certainly organizations that do exist um, that focus specifically on international religious freedom, um, such as the Religious Freedom Institute or the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. But um, as far as religious dynamics go politically within this program, um, it, it seems to be more of the, the source that fuels these issues or a potential um, nexus or an outlet in understanding how and why these issues exist in the first place. What our students would know, but if you don't study right. religion, you wouldn't know, is that many religions that are in conflict now have gotten along quite well in the past. Yeah, certainly. And in, in recognizing the kind of context of a lot of these issues that exist is, is necessary in understanding why or how these um, these different religions might have evolved to either cooperate or live in, in conflict. One example I'm thinking of is between the uh, the Muslims and the Buddhists in Myanmar. Um, of course, for centuries, the two religious groups were living in harmony, separate, separated by um, the mountainous region um, from the Arakan State and um, the Eastern Valley. And in the 19th century, I believe, when the the British influence was expanding um, eastward from India, and they created this uh, colonized government, they were already, um, well, I, I suppose the the Muslims in this area, uh, the Rohingya, were accepted and uh, included as a part of the this colonized uh, government structure in Myanmar. Um, and after World War II, once uh, Myanmar gained their independence, the primary, primarily uh, Buddhist majority population wanted their turn to you know, maintain the power of the political and social dynamics within the country. So the roles were reversed, essentially. Um, and now today we're seeing kind of the, the ongoing bleeding um, that just so happened to yeah. create this rift among these two. The British have done that a lot in many places where they took where they ruled. There were different groups that had slightly different positions under the British than they did after the British, and then that led to conflict. It's interesting, you were pointing out that you're also doing a certificate that involves international um, organizations and things like that. And I mean, I'm sure they don't talk about that in the certificate programs, but the first international organizations were, of course, all religiously based. I mean, that's one of the things that first made humans think that they could organize themselves across borders and across cultures and across languages by having a, a singular religion. So Buddhism, for example, is a kind of community that spread outside of Northeast India, where it started, into all sorts of different countries and created a sense of community. They had meetings of monks from all over Asia, Asia that would get together and discuss these matters. So really that was probably one of the first international organizations in the world. Then you've got the Christian church, you've got Islam. So religion really set the pattern for the whole idea of having an international organization, if you think about it.
Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I'm actually in a course right now called NGO Non-Governmental Organizations Management in Developing Countries. Um, of course, there are many religious elements that are explored in this class for the very reasons that you uh, suggested that um, the approach to religion uh, philanthropically is seen as, you know, kind of spreading the influence or spreading the humanistic desire to alleviate suffering that exists in the world. I think that's a pretty common trope among many religions. Uh, so to spread this in an organized and, um, you know, official way through a non-governmental organizationalitarianism doing good for people. Absolutely. Of course, the, the problem, yeah, because it's complicated, because what you think is good, they might not think is good. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I, again, it, I think to the common point that uh, has been reoccurring throughout this discussion is that religions do motivate, and they do motivate on an international scale through the vessels of individuals. And today, while you know we live in a country that might be predominantly secular, I hate to use that term because you know there there is religion in the United States, but but remember what we learned in class: secularism, right? Is is secularism doesn't necessarily mean that you personally don't believe in any religion. It means that the society doesn't advocate any one particular religion, right? But the word often gets used as a synonym to atheist, but it's not really at all. It just means you don't think that public life should be dominated by religion, but in private you can be whatever you want. Certainly, yeah. Um, so again, that, that goes uh, to the point, oh, once again, that religion, whether one person is uh, ascribed to a, a specific belief system or not, uh, still does motivate um, individuals. I think the degree to which religion motivates people is far underappreciated. In my travels around the world, this the amount of people I've met who just don't even think about it. It's just, that's their belief system, and they will do lots of things that might in a utilitarian way not necessarily help them in their life. It won't get them more money or more food, but they do it because they believe that that's what they ought to do. And I think that modern political science and international relations does have to take that into consideration. So you've traveled a lot, and as a student, tell us a little bit about where you traveled as a student for longer periods of time, and what you gained out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see, in fall of 2019, I studied abroad for one semester in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Uh, now, this happened as um, mostly a a coincidence in that it was an available program. I had just finished a class with uh, Professor Jason Clower on the religions of Southeast Asia and thought, sure, Thailand sounds fun, and ended up there and really got to see um, how religion operates in everyday life um, via Buddhism, in that you could probably throw within Chiang Mai, you could throw a stone from one temple to the next and uh, always be within range of at least the architectural uh, influence of religion. Um, yes, now that's a good point, right? The whole layout of these cities is based around religious structures, for sure. And uh, within that, it becomes difficult to forget or to... Uh, I suppose, push religious influence out of your mind. But the way that 
again, Thailand was structured, it seemed very happily integrated into society um, in that you would see students uh, sitting at an altar, uh, probably before a test um, coming up and, and gaining motivation or influence to do well. And I think in Thailand, especially this outward expression or this kind of architectural influence really did uh, support the local communities in that and that there is this collective process towards um, group cooperation uh, through again this this nexus of religion um, i was fortunate enough to participate in a, a volunteer opportunity teaching english to local buddhist monk students they were probably around my age at the time anywhere from maybe 18 to 22 23 and a lot of these students were coming from uh, rural villages in Thailand to um, to this Buddhist university in Chiang Mai and it it was it was so fun just to be able to connect through this um educational opportunity between religions and sharing our influences but also recognizing that we are all or we were then young adults and just having fun for example um, after a, a lesson on English grammar structures, we spent some time to teach these Buddhist monks um, very popular tongue twisters in English. And it, it, it was just so fun to, to recognize this humanity that exists among us. And you also did some work in South America, didn't you? Building houses, am I mistaken? Yes, that was done much earlier. Um, and we've taken a a small trip down to Ensenada, Mexico, um, to build a, a house for, I believe it was for a, a couple with a young child who were educators for an all-female school in Ensenada, Mexico. And really observing and, and integrating in these cross-cultural environments is truly the best way to emphasize this uh, opportunity to explore these commonalities between um, between all through these uh, different social uh, you know connection connection opportunities yeah fantastic uh, I'm really glad that you did all those things and I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself and about other people by traveling and working with people around the world absolutely yeah it's it truly is a great experience so let's finish by just having you say a little bit about what you plan to do after this degree. What kind of opportunities does it open up for you? I ultimately would like to get back into the world of research and uh, supporting policy development with, um, with adequate and equitable information. So the primary goal that I'd like to pursue is, as I've mentioned earlier, a program or an organization uh, and working with the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, this organization is an independent advisory council to the U.S. State Department and policymakers on issues that um, that threat the fundamental right to the freedom of religion or the freedom of belief. Um, this organization produces annual reports on the degree of religious freedom uh, among all countries in the world and then suggests various policy recommendations that the U.S. government uh, could take on these particular issues. Um, if 
anyone is interested, I'd highly suggest checking out their 2021 annual report um, to really investigate and look at these different issues that exist in countries around the world. Um, they have kind of a, a tiered system um, on the degree of where a country sits on their scale of international religious freedom. Um, additionally, after procuring more of this tangible experience, I would give your in international relations and sustainability to issues on international religious freedom. Well, that sounds fantastic. I, I'm sure if anybody can do it, you can. And I wish you all the best in your Thank studies you. and in your future, and do be sure to keep in touch with us. Thank you very much. And uh, before we finish, uh, if I could share a quote that I read today. Um, the language is a bit outdated, so I'll read an amended version that captures the same emphasis. Uh, so it reads, Strange is our situation here on Earth. Each of us comes for a short visit, not knowing why, yet sometimes seeming, seeming to divine in a purpose. From the standpoint of daily life, however, there is one thing we do know, that we are here for the sake of each other. And that's read by Albert Einstein. I like it. Let's end with those words. So thank you very much, and all the best, Spencer McNair. Great. Thank you, Daniel. If you'd like to learn more about the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities, please go to our website at csuchico.edu slash c-o-r-h. That's c-s-u-c-h-i-c-o dot e-d-u slash c-o-r-h. I want to point out that the opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect those of the faculty and staff of our department. Well, when I grow up, I, I want to become <laughs> Professor Weidlinger. Yeah.